Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. It's officially the first day of fall for 2022, and I owe you an apology Apparently, the Tuesday episode, the recording was a mess. I heard from multiple people about the tracks not being aligned. We had a nightmare of technical difficulties that day. I thought we had cleared them up. We didn't. Apologize. I, I'm glad people pointed it out to me so we can be more careful. I'm, it's today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn. I'm here with Lisa Garvin, Courtney Astolfi, and Layla Tassi. Laura Johnston is appearing at our nurses event this morning, and Courtney is filling in. Good morning, all. Good morning. Let's begin. How bad is Cleveland International Airport? Layla, we talk about this all the time. It's a toilet. So what's the <laughs> what's the objective measure of how bad this awful airport is? Yeah, yeah, I have such limited experience in the airport, but it was such a bad experience, so I will never stop harping on it. But according to J.D. Power, the consumer research and data firm, uh, Cleveland Hopkins is pretty near the bottom when compared to similarly sized airports. We were third to last among medium-sized airports, which are those with 4.5 million to 9.9 million annual passengers. Only Hollywood Burbank Airport in California and Kaului Airport in Hawaii scored worse. Although, you know, I bet both of those airports at least have better scenery than <laughs> Cleveland Hopkins. But yeah, and how much do you care? <laughs> if you're flying to Hawaii, how much do you care what the yeah, airport Yeah, I know. You just, like? You're getting out of the airport as fast as you can in, in those places. But uh, Indianapolis International Airport was the top-ranked medium-sized airport. Pittsburgh was second. Jacksonville was third. These were rankings based on customer surveys. I think there were like 25,000 people who took this survey. Cleveland's poor showing was really on account of several key factors. The place is too crowded. It's too expensive at the terminal. A quarter of travelers in Cleveland say they didn't buy any food or beverages at the airport because the prices are too inflated. And parking is both too expensive and in really short supply. You would just drive around forever looking for a place to park in time for your flight. So from last year to this year, though, Silver lining, Cleveland did improve in some areas. Security screening, there's one area, it's, I guess it's getting better. And we did uh, we did better than the national average for all airports. So obviously some of the bigger airports are scoring a whole lot worse. Yeah, so Newark. That. I mean, if you're going <laughs> to yeah. compare us to Newark, of course we're going to look okay. So that place is curve, as big a toilet yeah. as any. Right, right. Yeah. I mean, but, I, go ahead. But, yeah. But Detroit is in one of the best in the country, and that's two, two and a half hours away. That's what we should be emulating. We're never going to get there as long as Cleveland runs the airport because Cleveland doesn't have the means to start over. If we ever got our 
our senses together as a region and created a regional airport authority to run Akron, Canton, Richmond, and and the the international airport. I'm presuming you all want to close Burke. You could build a new airport someplace convenient for the entire region and make it something special, funding it with some kind of regional funding plan so that you take Cleveland's financial constraints out of the picture. And it should be a regional facility because everybody uses it. I don't I can't tell you how many times I've I've looked to fly out of another airport just to avoid it. I love flying out of Detroit. It's great. Yeah, I've never I can't recall the last time I've been to that airport, but what 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 makes what sets it apart from Cleveland? It's easy to get around. It's it's newer. It's been designed to be accommodating to people. It's clean. You know, you don't go into bathrooms and find all the supplies missing or for some reason, you know, hanging <laughs> on the wall or something. It's just it's it's much better run. It's a better operation because it was it's modern it's not in detroit it's actually pretty far outside detroit because it's a regional airport they put it right next to a highway easy to get in and out of great parking the whole thing just runs Mm -hmm. like a clock and i'm so i'm not surprised it ranks way way up there there's just nothing you can do with our aging facility as it is and so you know what would be nice is if you got a regional authority you tore that thing down, kept it in place. You know, it's a good location, actually, but but rebuilt it, you know, from the ground up. Have a couple years where the terminals are in big tents while you rebuild it. Make it inconvenient, but build something special. But you can't do it with Cleveland owning it. And I've never understood why Cleveland insists on keeping it, because it's an enterprise fund. They can't make any money on it. It can't feed the city budget. Right. And, you know, how many jobs are there that Cleveland controls out there. It's like the custodial staff and some things, a couple hundred. I mean, what is the real benefit for Cleveland to running that? Yeah, uh, it's a it's a great question. <laughs> Except that it always ranks as one of the worst worst airports in the country. <laughs> <laughs> Badge of honor for Cleveland. We did ask Bib during the campaign, Justin Bib, the mayor, about it, and he was dead set against offloading it, it yeah. which I didn't understand because he's pretty forward thinking in other areas. Yeah. I mean, yeah. You know how they are about their assets. They can't, they, they, they'll never part with them. It's, but it's... he did, but he is with the West side market. He's saying, let's put that in private hands. I mean, I, I think if he went to the business community and said, look, it's a toilet, we can't make it great. We're the way we have it. And the landing fees are too high. So airlines don't want to fly in and out of there because we've always reported our landing fees are high. What if we did something radically different to reduce the landing fees, make it an attractive airport? Detroit's still a hub. It's a Delta hub because it's a great airport and they want to fly in and out of there. I don't know how many times we can say it. It's a pit. It's been a pit. And the whole world knows it's a pit. It's today in Ohio. Where have all the nurses gone? Yesterday, we talked about a shortage of mail carriers resulting in days with no mail being delivered in some neighborhoods. We can all make do without mail for a day, but when you run out of nurses, we're in big trouble, Lisa. Yeah, and the COVID had a lot to do with it, but really it exacerbated a problem that was years in the making. The American Association of Nursing Colleges released a fact sheet after a survey they did of nurses. And, you know, they did find that large numbers left during the COVID pandemic for several issues. And this is not an Ohio problem or an American problem. It is a global problem. So uh, one of the 
the issues is the aging workforce. The average age of nurses that took the survey is 52 years old. 19% of nurses in the U.S. are 65 and older, and 20% of them plan to retire within the next five years. So that will leave us nearly 2 million nurses short by the year 2030. Another big deal is burnout results in high turnover. Um, We talked to an anonymous ICU nurse who didn't want her name published because she wants to be able to still get a job in her profession. She works at the Cleveland Clinic. She became a traveling nurse. And this is a huge issue. Uh, My mother had, you know, had to be hospitalized. They couldn't take her at Ahuja because they didn't have beds. So they sent her to Painesville. And I talked to a nurse and they said, traveling nurses make much better money. But there are nurses that work for UH that are just traveling from one hospital to another, but they're getting almost quadruple the pay. So they really have to fight that. There are some hospitals that are offering incentives, you know, incentive pay to retain their staff. So, and the problem too is also in the teaching end. There are lots of nursing school applicants, not enough spots in nursing schools for them. In Ohio last year, there were 4,000 nursing degrees awarded through 45 programs, but there were 4,000 qualified applicants that were turned away. So they really have to, you know, attack this from all fronts. Well, and we've got to do something to make their lives easier. It's a strenuous job. It's a high pressure job. I have a special place in my heart for nurses. My mom started as an RN before she rose up the ranks, the director of nursing and a big hospital company executive. When I was in high school or college, she went back to being a a nurse in a hospital just to, to, to get back into the patient care. And the thing about nurses, unlike doctors, is they pay attention to you, the whole person. Doctors are looking at what's wrong with you, the tumor, the broken bone, but the nurses are focused on you. There is a, there is a bright light for Cleveland, though. We'll be talking about this more tomorrow. But Metro Health today is naming Erica Steed as the new CEO to replace the outgoing Akram Boutros. And she's a woman that spent her early career in nursing. She's not coming up on the doctor side of things, although she's a PhD. She came up on the nursing side. So maybe she will focus on making lives better for, for nurses. Again, we'll talk about her more tomorrow, but it's a could be a good sign for Cleveland, yes? Yes. And I do want to point out another factor that's that kind of ties into this is there's a huge lack of qualified nursing instructors because that requires a master's degree. So Lisa Rowan, a chief nurse with the University of Maryland Medical System, which is similar to UH or Cleveland Clinic, they're providing clinical instruction to nurses using their own staff. They will pay their salaries and then offer these instructors to nursing schools for free. It's called Academy of Clinical Essentials or ACE. And they did a very successful pilot. And I hope that this can be translated to other hospitals. I think it can work in large and small and urban and rural hospital systems. Okay. And like I said at the beginning, Laura is at the nursing event of PlainDealerInCleveland.com this morning. So we're doing our own celebration of nurses. We have a couple of stories about it, a big section coming out in the Sunday Plain Dealer. It's today in Ohio. We have been talking for more than a year about the innovative Haslam plan for the Cleveland Lakefront. This is the plan that the Browns owners, Dee and Jimmy Haslam, put forward to try and get some movement so we can all enjoy our big natural asset. But now Mayor Justin Bibb wants to go even bigger. 
Courtney, how does he propose to do that? Yeah, the city wants to jump into this lakefront planning conversation. And we know the city's done that a million times over the years. But this BIP plan is really kind of uh, contrasted with the Haslam plan in that, you know, Bibb says he really wants it to be to bring a, a public perspective to lakefront planning efforts. The Haslam plan isn't really going to have that through the city. He wants the civic effort to to really capture the public's voices and preferences and have that kind of angle with lakefront planning. And, you know, this this bid planning effort, which is expected to take about a year and cost half a million dollars, is going to be broader in scope than the Haslam plan. So the Haslam plan looks at kind of the area between, you know, 3rd Street and East 9th Street and really focuses in on extending the downtown mall down to the North Coast Harbor. But, you know, Bibb's intention here is to look all the way from the warehouse district to East 18th Street and also include kind of like the Muni lot in the space along South Marginal Road. What I find interesting about this is that the Haslams, as we know, were chief funders of that sick attack ad that went against Bibb when he was running for mayor. Uh, and I think it's interesting that he's going, you know, thanks, Haslam's, for sparking the conversation. But this really needs to be done by the city, not by you. And the Haslam said from the start, hey, look, we're hoping somebody runs with this. But you did get the feeling in the quotes in Steve Litt's story today that he's saying, yeah, 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 thank you very much. We got this now. Yeah, and it, and it does strike me as kind of that city focus. Do you want the city and the public entity guiding the planning, or do you want, or do you want the Haslam's guiding the planning? And and Bib is clearly drawing that line here. What I think is interesting here is that Haslam plan kicked off a transportation study last year that a lot of big players like GCP is involved with, and that transportation study is kind of going to be complementary to the bid plan. So it seems like when we get through with this process, we're going to have kind of several options about how we can connect down to the lakefront. And then the the bid plan would really be about what's going on once you get down there. So these are complementary efforts and we don't know how it's going to shake out. But 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 the city does say that that their planning efforts are going to assume the Brown Stadium is staying in place. And and while they're going to take public comments about closing Burke, right, um, that's not really going to be part of this planning process. Detailed plans for for what to do with that on the lakefront would go through something separate, a different process. Well, I, it, it, the only thing that I think strikes fear into people's hearts is, as you said earlier, this is what, Plan 563 right. for the lakefront that we don't get done. And by the Haslam stepping forward with a pretty good vision, I mean, their plan, what they, you know, they spent more than a million dollars on it and it was a pretty cool plan. And then putting it into the hands of the GCP to steward it, it gave people confidence that, okay, we might actually get this done this time. I, I love that Bib is thinking bigger, but if you use history as your guide, this is going to end up in a drawer somewhere and we're still going to have Burke on the lakefront and there'll be nothing down there for people to do. So Bib better deliver on this because there was momentum for the Haslam plan. I get it. They're, you know, politics is politics and the Haslam's worked very hard to keep him out of office. So he's probably not fond of them, but he's got to come through with 
with the big vision now that he's started it. Getting the public involved, Steve Litt has pointed out repeatedly, the public has not been involved at all on the Haslam plan. And unless you bring in the engagement, and Bibb says this, you're not going to have any support anywhere. I mean, Jane Campbell had charrettes where hundreds of people got together to imagine the lakefront. And it seems like Bibb is going in that direction. And you got to think about the private money involved if the Haslam plan goes through. I mean, funding this, there's no price tag attached here. We obviously don't know what it would cost to implement what this study will eventually recommend, right? But if it's, if we're looking at funding, I don't know if you have as much access to those deep pockets, if it's a city-led effort, I mean, right? No, you you don't. (laughs) (laughs) They're losing money because of all the people getting their tax refunds or not. It's Today in Ohio. Why won't the Republicans running for statewide office agree to debates coordinated by the Ohio Debate Commission? Layla, this news broke yesterday. Yeah, I mean, the Republican nominees for U.S. Senate and Governor J.D. Vance and and Governor Mike DeWine, they've turned down invitations from the Ohio Debate Commission. So it's it's unclear if there will be any debates between Vance and Democratic Senate nominee Tim Ryan or DeWine and and his Democratic opponent, Nan Whaley. These debates were supposed to be held on October 10th and the 12th in Akron, and and Ryan and Whaley had already accepted the invitations. What seems to be underpinning the Republicans' rejection of the debates is the fact that the Ohio Debate Commission's executive director, Jill Miller-Zyman, ran as a Democratic legislative candidate in 2014. She also once criticized Rush Limbaugh in blog posts and donated $250 to Ryan's congressional campaign in 2014. So Vance's campaign has called her a liberal Tim Ryan donor who has repeatedly and publicly smeared Republicans. And he thinks it'd be just crazy to participate in a debate organized by a group that she runs. Hmm. And and DeWine, for his part, is trying to say that events like you know, his endor- his editorial board endorsement interview with, with us should just serve as, you know, a de facto debate with Whaley. So he's trying to, you know, get out of well, it that no. way. <laughs> he's right. Our, our endorsement interviews, as we proved with the county executive, are far more effective for providing you information about candidates than the lame debates as they run now. That city club debate between the two candidates was, yeah, was, the format was boring is just, and extreme. Just, yeah, our format is, is just much more freewheeling, much more interesting. We give them more yeah. space to, uh, to explore the question and to come at each other. Um, and it's it's but, always done with respect to one another, and and we keep you know, guardrails around it, and it's it's just far more interesting. Man, the the yeah yeah I agree. So I gotta I, I gotta get sound effects for dragging out my soapbox because I I gotta say a couple <laughs> things about the debate commission. This this is I was on the board of the debate commission until last winter, and this this is sad because the whole reason exists is to have independent debates and there won't be any in the, in this big election year but it was entirely foreseeable because republicans kept saying to the board hey you ought to have some republicans on the board there ought to be some party involvement in this board and there was arrogance on that board like no no we know best we're going to tell you how it is and it was largely made up of media and academics and and you could see why republicans don't trust it and they kept saying you ought to involve us and if they had if they had said sure let's bring in people from each party make this a collaborative effort dewine and vance might have trusted it on the other hand, I think it's reprehensible that they're attacking Jill Miller-Zyman. I can tell you from sitting on that board 
that she was the most ethical. I, the integrity she has is just unquestionable. She worked so hard to make this work. I mean, I, I just, it was a privilege to work with her mm -hmm. and they're vulnerable because she did work for Democrats. And because the board is arrogant and didn't have Republican participation, they exposed her to this criticism, but it's just wrong. And look, I say that as somebody, I don't think there were many people more critical of me eight years ago than Jill Miller-Simon. Hmm. We, we had a controversy where we had a video of our endorsement interview with John Kasich and Ed Fitzgerald, and I took the video down and just put up the audio, and I caught holy hell from it. And, but the reason was we had told Kasich and Fitzgerald it would be audio only. We didn't tell them there'd be video, and by putting up a video, I felt like we were being dishonorable. But I caught hell. I mean, it was bad, and Jill was one of the most vocal. So if anybody has a, should have a grudge against Jill Miller, I would be me. And I have nothing but respect for her. It's unfair to criticize her. They should reconstitute the board of this thing. It's a noble effort, but you should get rid of half the people, bring in people from multiple walks of life, bring in the political parties. This is something that should live. And Jill should be the executive director because I don't think it'll survive without her. Well, is the End idea so behind it that it was supposed to be nonpartisan? Is that what they claim that the... Yeah, they just believe they knew better. I mean, I, I remember sitting in conversations and they would just say, these are the rules. And it's like, well, what if they don't participate? Well, these are the rules. They're going to do it or, or else. And it's like, OK, well, they're not going to participate. And that's where we are. I think if if the Republican Party said to DeWine and Vance, look, we have a seat at the table. The moderator is go is even. We had a role in helping pick the moderator. This is going to be fair. You have our word on it. They might do it. But why, if you were a Republican, would would you do it with all of this going on? Plus, the Republicans said it. There was a point at which they were trying to get money from the state to fund it because in other states they fund it. And even at the state level, they're like, well, you know, who's on your board? You need to have evenness on the board. But that's not Jill's fault. Jill's the executive director. And and I just I when I saw Fox News, you know, ran the story just viciously pillaging her. It's just not fair. And and really, the the board of that that organization should put out a statement saying that they should be defending her to the hilt because she's never done anything the least bit partisan in that role. I, I should mention, since we're talking about politics, we have started a free subtext uh, through the election where our state house and politics reporters are going to be sending out text a few times a day with inside information about the elections. You can find all the details. We've got a story about it on cleveland.com. It'll end with the election. You get two, three, three, two, three, four free texts a day that keep you inside. I just signed Check up it for out. it this morning. It's yeah, it's good. It's today in Ohio. All right, Lisa, you sat in on all three interviews for the Ohio Supreme Court. Republicans didn't participate, but what did the Democrats running for the court have to say when they were interviewed by the editorial board for Cleveland.com and the Plain Dealer? Yeah, it was it was very interesting, and it was nice. You know, I, of course, we always like to have both candidates present because you get, they get to play off each other and, and everything else. But it was nice to get an in-depth, you know, view into the minds of these candidates, one of whom is already on the court, uh, Justice Jennifer Bruner. She met with us this week, and they really can't talk about 
about much. They really can't talk about any pending litigation in the Ohio Supreme Court. So that includes the fetal heartbeat law and all the stuff around that. It also includes redistricting. But they could talk about issue one. This is the issue on the ballot that requires judges to consider public safety when setting bail. Now, Brent Bruner said, it sounds great. It's well-intentioned, but it removes the flexibility of the Ohio Supreme Court to set rules around bails and bonds. She said public safety is already considered. That's part of the law. And she said, quote, we need responsible bail reform, not debtors' prisons. She said, you know, a lot of rich people get charged with very dangerous crimes. They get out of jail because they can afford the bail, but poor people are stuck in jail because they can't afford it. And she said it won't make the the, the uh, community safer. She was also on the opposite side of Sharon Kennedy, her opponent for the chief justice job, on the DuBose case that was upholding an appellate ruling that lowered bail of an accused Cincinnati murderer, Justin DuBose, lowered it from $1.5 million to $500,000. And Kennedy, in her dissent, as Bruner told us, she failed to, in the dissent, Kennedy said that they failed to meet the legal threshold to reconsider bail. And then uh, Justice Pat DeWine said that it made the public less safe. So yeah, it, it, it was interesting. And then we also talked to uh, Marilyn Zayas, the Democrat who is running against uh, Patrick DeWine. She said that it's fascinating, that's the word she used many times, that her opponent, Pat DeWine, is attacking the majority opinion on the DuBose case. And then Terry Jameson, the Democratic woman who's running against Patrick Fisher, said, you know, the mechanism is already in place. Prosecutors can revoke or deny bail. She said, again, echoing Bruner, um, that it interferes with the Supreme Court authority over other courts on matters of bail and bond. So, but yeah, it was interesting because we were able to tease them out. We found out that Terry Jameson, you know, started her career as a coal miner, you know, buttressing the, the roofs of mine shafts and how she rose and went to law school and then became a judge. So, um, yeah, it was interesting, but unfortunately, like I said, you know, and they were very careful to hew a nonpartisan line when we asked them obviously partisan questions, you know, um, that they were very nonpartisan in their answers. They were clear though, that there is no way, uh, justice should be sitting on a case involving a family member. Yes. Um, and that's Pat DeWine. He has sat on the case involving his dad. We could not find another example of that anywhere in the country in history because judges know they can't do it. And I, I thought they would be squiggly because they don't want to criticize, but they were clear. Yeah, you can't do that. That's absolutely wrong. And Bruner went so far as to say, you know, the Supreme Court chief justice in every other court can just bounce you for that, mm-hmm. which which they've done. Uh, she said previous Supreme Court chief would call the person and say, look, I'm going to bounce you. So why don't you just get off? Whereas O'Connor has basically just bounced them, but they can't do it. Or, or they may not be able to do it to their own colleague. So Pat DeWine has sat on this case, and I keep waiting for the results. There's got to be a bar complaint because you just can't do what he's doing. So I was glad that they spoke to that, and that really ought to affect how people vote because Pat DeWine is, has proven he doesn't really pay attention to the judicial canons. 
It's today in Ohio. We got to get through two more and we're running out of time. Even though lawmakers have been incapable of getting congressional and legislative districts into a form that adheres to the Constitution, they already are moving on to a new redistricting project. Courtney, what is it and what's the goal? Yeah, next up, state appellate court maps. Um, You know, State Rep Bill Seitz of Cincinnati and Jason Stevens of Lawrence County, after our fun summer of redistricting drama, are now jumping into the state appellate court line process. And and I will say... um, you know, the lines have not been redrawn in, in 40 years, and and they think it's the time is right to do it now. And this proposed map that Andrew Tobias kind of laid out and explained to readers is, is really fascinating. Basically, the conclusion there is that it would take three pretty competitive districts in Ohio, the first district, which is around Cincinnati, the sixth in Toledo, and the ninth based in Akron, but including a bunch of Northeast Ohio counties, it's going to skew those more Republican. If you look, if you measure Republican by Trump's performance in the 2020 election here. So it is going to skew the courts that way. Um, But, you know, state Republicans seem to be moving forward with this and, and folks in the know are taking this effort pretty seriously, particularly because Bill Seitz is involved yeah, should anybody be surprised that Bill Seitz is involved in trying to gerrymander court districts? What a shock. Yeah, so so Seitz didn't talk to Andrew for this story, but he did to- tell the Columbus Dispatch that it was time to, quote, right-size the court districts, and and that that's what they're going to start pursuing. So it, it is worth noting here that it would add three judges to the current total statewide bench of 69, but really where the action is, is is the changing of the line. So in Cuyahoga County, for instance, we will not change here. Eighth District would remain in place. But, you know, Lorraine County, for instance, would be taken out of the Ninth District now. Now they're paired up with Akron. And Lorraine County would be lumped in with a district that stretches west almost entirely to the western Ohio border. Yeah. It's political games. While they have the supermajority, they're trying to skew the courts like they've skewed the districts. It's really not it's not in the public interest. They're not doing it for the good of the state. They're figuring we got to do this while we can. Sad, but we'll have to keep paying attention to it. It's today in Ohio. What were the highlights of Eric Gordon's 12th and final State of the School speech Wednesday? Layla, we were there. It was a crowd that was very passionately behind the CEO, although his speech wasn't anywhere near as interesting as his responses to the children. Yeah, for for me, the best moments of the speech happened during that Q&A portion. Obviously, the big news of the past week has been Eric Gordon's announcement that this will be his last year as CEO of the schools and that he's leaving in June. So there was this procession of CMSD students at the mic during the Q&A with questions about what the change in leadership might mean for them with their special programming that they love evaporate and, and what will happen to Say Yes to Education, the scholarship program that Gordon helped bring to Cleveland that guarantees free college tuition to students who graduate from CMSD high schools. And and it was that last question that evoked the best answer of the day from Gordon. He said, you know, look, Say Yes isn't going anywhere. And I'll tell you why, because people in this community raised $95 million to make sure you get to go to college. And if the next CEO says they plan on eliminating that program, They will have hell to pay with those people who put that money in the bank for you. 
And he said, take Buffalo, for example. They established a Say Yes program there. They have since had six CEOs pass through that district. Some of them have suggested doing away with Say Yes, but Say Yes is still there and they are not. <laughs> and it was well, just brilliant, brilliant response. And it kind of shot across the bow to anyone who might consider tampering with this sacred program that's been established for Cleveland students after Gordon leaves. And he was, it was such a strong delivery. When he was speaking extemporaneously, it, there was so much more passion than when he was reading the speech. I mean, the speech was fine. It's yeah. about passing the baton and all they've accomplished. Right. But he became so much more animated and forceful as he as he answered the question, I mean that answer about guess what they're gone. Stay yes is still there. It I know. was just everybody <laughs> was laughing and applauding. It was great, um, and and clearly you know there's all these speeches: state of the school, state of the city, state of the county, state of Metro Health, where all these people get together and it's this rote thing. This one was different. There, you could see in this room people greatly appreciate what Eric has done for this district and are going to miss him. I mean, that's what you were, people were saying as they were walking out is, wow, there are going to be very tough shoes to fill. Yeah, yeah, you're right. And and like like you said, you know, a lot of his speech was was really about um, how, um, you know, he talked about how improving the school district isn't a sprint. It's not a marathon. It's a relay race. And a good leader knows when the time is right to pass the baton. He walked us through why that moment is now for him and the district. You know, he said for the first time, CMSD is the highest rated urban school district in Ohio. And, um, you know, that that we're he's he's leaving at a at a high watermark for the for the district and and uh, and leaving it yeah. in the hands of the next CEO. I thought he took that that analogy about six laps too far. I don't know how many <laughs> oh! times they showed a photo, but it was way too many times. We should point out I sent it out on subtext this morning. Courtney, you'll be publishing the story that clears away some of the smoke that's been out there about why he's leaving. You've got some answers that have been previously unreported, so people should look forward to that story. It's Today in Ohio. We've gone long. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Courtney. Thanks, Layla. Thanks to everybody who listens. We'll be back Friday to wrap up the week.